Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's turn our Bibles now and we'll go to Exodus chapter 2. We'll continue in the story of God getting ready to deliver Israel from Egypt. And we're going to take a lot of parallels to our own society and what's even happening now. The title of today's message is called Faith Confronts Opposition. And what you're going to see by these individuals in the text, we know their names, but the text doesn't name them. The text won't even name God. It shows a human drama, but what we're supposed to see by none of the humans being named is that God is the primary actor, even though he is not named. You're seeing the primary action of God's providence through the story mixed in with human freedom. But that freedom, that human action, is driven by the people in the story's faith. And so it's a perfect example of how our lives are to be led. We, li- we live by faith, and at the same time, the overarching hand and providence of God, that unseen hand, is guiding all of life, even though we freely choose to do what we need to do for our lives. And you'll see that in this story, but we won't also want to take it and understand that that's happening with us as well. So God is definitely involved in our lives. You may not think so, but he's intimately acquainted with what we're doing. The other vein of information I want us to look at through this story is the setting. The setting is that a new pharaoh has came in and he's reversed the policies of being pro-Israel to being anti-Israel. He hates the Jews and he has set up a propaganda in the state of Egypt and then he has worked to start what's called covert infanticide. Now, as you recall, the midwives are to kill the baby boys, the Jewish baby boys, as they are born. As you remember the story last week, they defended against that. They wouldn't do that edict. They dragged their feet and didn't practice that and practiced what we call civil disobedience to the authority, which was applauded by God and blessed by God. Then it moves from that to overt infanticide. That now the state policy is not being hidden anymore. It's overt, and they tell the Egyptian people, kill every Jewish baby. And do this by exposing them to the Nile, basically throwing them into the Nile. And we will see whether or not the Nile God accepts them or rejects them. So basically taking the responsibility off the people and putting it on the Nile God. Well, again, that's just mind manipulation, propaganda type of stuff. But... What we want to see here is this. There's a pattern here. The pattern is propaganda, then covert, and then overt. That happened in Nazi Germany with propaganda, and then it was covert, then it went overt. And before you know it, everyone was sending the Jews to the ovens. And this is what you'll see today. You will see people give propaganda. And we've been watching that in the United States for some time now through politics, media, Hollywood, entertainment industry, propaganda, getting people to think a certain way because people lack discernment these days. And then you move into covertness. We're just not going to outright tell you what we are. We're going to kind of hide it and not tell you what we're doing. So we're going to cover it up with this infanticide, even in our country, which the same thing was happening in their country, infanticide. We're going to cover it up and say it's a woman's right. We're not going to say it's 
We just are inconvenient by these children in the womb, and so let's murder them. No, no, we're going to say covertly it's a mother's, a woman's right to her body. Funny thing is about that is I'd like to ask anyone that'd like to justify that, do you have four legs? Do you have two heads? No, I don't, they would say. Then what's inside of you? Because you don't have four legs and four arms and two heads. You don't have two brains. So what's going on inside you? And instead of debating that and, and, and talking rationally, what they want to do now is just fight you and say you're a hate monger and this and that. The same thing that was going on in Egypt that day is going on today. A culture of death was killing babies. I can tell you what comes after that. What happened to the Egyptians? It wasn't the whole reason, but it was part of the equation of why that dynasty got hammered by God. They were killing Jewish babies, infanticide. And so we see this today now that we have moved from propaganda to covert to now it's overt. They're actually celebrating, as you saw in the prophecy weekly update, they are celebrating murdering babies. When you see people go from covert to overt, that means they don't care anymore. They're just out there. They're telling you what they're going to do. They're telegraphing. And not just in that area of society, but in most of the categories of our society, people are not even covering up what they're doing. They're just overt saying what they're doing and daring you to do something about it. That's when you know the culture is like the Egyptian culture. It just became overt. Kill the Jews, just like Nazi Germany. And so now, right now, covertly, it's talking, talking about like anti-Semitism. The new anti-Semitism of our day is anti-Zion. They'll tell you, oh, we're not against the Jews, and we're not anti-Semitic. We're just anti-Zion. Folks, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic. I want to just say, be honest and tell me you hate the Jews. Just say it, just like Nazi Germany did, because that's where it's going. You've got people like Ilhan Omar overtly stating that the Jews are mesmerizing the world. Who says that and gets away with that? It's just overt, right? But that's how they are. Ilhan Omar said, the Jews are about the Benjamins. Remember that quote? She just went out and said it. See, that's where culture is getting. They're just overt now. They're not even trying to hide their sin. That's what the Egyptians were doing. That's how bad it got in Egypt. Let me give you a little typology. Egypt is a typology for the world, the world system, okay? So when you're looking at Egypt and you see what's going on here, you must apply this to current culture, to the world system, the cosmos in Greek, the system that is controlled by Satan, the system that will eventually be controlled by the Antichrist. In these passages, here's what I want you to keep in mind. The Pharaoh of the story is a typology for the Antichrist who will in the future go after the Jews and try to wipe out every Jewish person on this planet. So what you see happen in Egypt is going to happen eventually in the future. So this is applicable for not only us as a society, but us personally. So we'll go along, and I'll try to connect dots back and forth. But keep this in mind. No matter how bad things are getting, not only in our society, but even in our personal lives, 
God's providence rules. And you will see a beautiful display of God's providence ruling to protect Moses. And the same thing is true about you. When you look at Moses' life, he had a very difficult life. From the time he was born, he was sought to be killed. He had a very difficult upbringing. He was taken away from his family and put into the palace with the Pharaoh's daughter, as you remember. Moses, what we would call, had a broken or fractured life growing up. And many of us do as well. We had a broken, fractured family life. Things weren't ideal. But what I want you to see is how God's providence ruled through that, actually used what was happening for Moses' benefit, and so that Moses could complete his mission. And that's what I want to keep in mind. Whatever mission God has for you, he is working through the brokenness, all through the different angles that you had to take in life to get you to the point of accomplishing what he wants you to accomplish. Keep that in mind as you look at the providence all through this story. It's a beautiful story. It's well known, but we're going to dig deep in this, okay? Let's start in verse 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. Notice how the players are not named. No one will be named in the story because the primary actor is God, okay? Now, we know this is Moses' parents, Amram, and his mother, Jochebed. So we know who this is later on. But here's what I want you to see in this. Notice that both of them from the house of Levi. Moses is writing this story and telling that that his mom and dad are from the tribe of Levi. Why? Because it is giving Moses' credential as a religious leader, the sacerdotal leader of Israel. Moses will go in front of the tabernacle. He will speak face to face with God. And only one tribe could be around the tabernacle, and it was a tribe of Levi. So Moses is putting in there both my parents were from this tribe, which gives me their credentials to lead Israel religiously. And you say, okay, I got that. But again, what God will do with a lot of the biblical characters is that their origin, where they come from, is actually their credentials for the work he has them to do. And I don't want you to miss this. Your background gives you the credentials to do the mission God has called you to do. You you might say, well, my background's all checkered and this and that. So was Moses's. He killed a guy. Remember that? We'll look at that probably next week or the week after. And what what you're starting to see is your credentials to do the mission God's called you to do has already been given to you. Your whole past, your whole background is what God has provided for you to use. And so that's what Moses is trying to point out. I have the credentials religiously to lead Israel as a spiritual leader. Okay, verse 2. So the woman, notice she's not named, Jochebed, conceived and bore a son. Again, the son's not named. We know it's Moses, but look at the son. He's not named. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now we have to start unpacking and drilling down a little bit. At first blush, in your English, you're going to think, well, you know, this is a maternal instinct. Every mom thinks their baby is beautiful, and, and, you know, it's just part of maternal instinct, you know. And I get that, but that's not what's going on here. Every mom thinks their child is beautiful. Okay, the point is, and it's hard to see this in English, somehow Jacobed saw that Moses was uniquely equipped for a destiny, 
that something was different. He, he had a special purpose than just a regular child. Now, the term in Hebrew is actually the word good. It's like it refers back to creation. And when Moses wrote in Genesis, and, you know, and the first day, and it was good. You'll have all these statements, and it was good, and it was good. You remember that? When Moses uses the statement, and it was good, and he uses it in reference to him, it means that it's a direct creation from God that's going to be used as an instrument to do something on a grander scale. And so the Hebrew word good is being used there. So you can see this in Hebrews chapter 11. I think we'll have that on the screen for you. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, the writer of Hebrews makes mention of this and says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. And again, the, the idea of a beautiful child doesn't mean physical appearance. It actually means good. Good for a purpose. Good that's going to be used. Now, here's the deal. I don't know how she knew that. Could she have just seen the child? And, and I, I don't know. Josephus, commenting on this passage, and Josephus goes back about 2,000 years, and he's drawing a lot from the Jewish influence, said that, Jacobed, the oral law held that Jacobed had a special revelation from God that indicated to Moses' parents that he's going to be used for a special purpose of deliverance. And again, we, we don't know that. It doesn't say in the Bible, but that's the oral law, the speculation that they had a separate revelation. But nonetheless, maybe God impressed on her heart. I don't know. Maybe God spoke to her somehow, some way to let her know, you must do everything you can to protect this baby. This is the deliverer of Israel. And so it's the same connotation, you know, our our same idea that even when Joseph and Mary were, were told by an angel to protect Jesus, you remember that? It's the same typology. Notice that Moses is threatened as a child. Notice it's a typology of Jesus as he is threatened as a child by Herod. Remember that? It's the same parallel. And... The parents are warned somehow in a dream or whatnot, take the child and remove the child. So we don't know all that's there, but somehow spiritually she knows. She knows something is different about this child. Okay. That being the case then, let's move to verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it. Now, what does that mean a little bit? Let's unpack this. Okay, so the edict, obviously, from Egypt is every Jewish male boy should be thrown into Nile and exterminated. She goes against that, but in a certain way. She's practicing civil disobedience, but she's still keeping the letter of the law. How so? Because she will put Moses in the Nile as commanded, but she will put him in an ark. So in one sense, she is keeping what Pharaoh told the Hebrew people to do. She is exposing him to the Nile, but she's provided a safety net for him as he's there. Now, here's what I want to point out. In a lot of our movies, a lot of even children's stories are not reading the text correctly or interpreting the text correctly. And if you notice, she took an ark of bulrushes for him and put the child in it, and it says, and laid it in the reeds of the riverbank. Now, if you can get this picture... Most of your movies portray Jacobed or Jacobed as 
pushing the ark out into the water and letting the current take the ark and it floats down the Nile. That is not what Moses is trying to state. That's the actual opposite of what he's trying to state. She's putting it in the reeds so it doesn't drift away. That it stays right where she put it. And I know we've been inundated by movies and cartoons and that she just cast it onto the Nile. That's not what's happening here. She's keeping it there for a reason. I'll come back to that reason in just a bit. But let's focus now, right now, on the ark itself that she prepares. She creates an ark, obviously made out of bulrushes or papyrus in that region. Okay, And it's called an ark. And what Moses is trying to do is parallel the ark that was made for him to Noah's ark and then to the ark of the covenant. Moses is tying all three arks together. Noah, Moses' baby ark, and then the ark of the covenant. What do you mean? Well, when you look at this, you start seeing themes that come from the ark. And I want to give you some of those things. The big overarching idea is that the ark is a provision of divine protection or divine provision. And um, when you see that, God is making sure that Moses is going to be kept safe, that Noah and the animals on the ark are going to be kept safe. And then what you see is that the ark is shelter from wrath. The ark is shelter from wrath. What I mean by that is it's the wrath of Pharaoh coming on Moses. In Noah, it's the wrath of God. And then in the Ark of the Covenant, the wrath that's being protected from is the wrath of the law. So the Arks are always a symbol of protection from wrath, whether they come from God, whether they come from Pharaoh, which is really Satan or the Antichrist, or the condemnation of the law. The ark is also a place of refuge and security. You have to be in the ark to get the refuge and the security. Notice that the ark's materials come out of the earth. Noah's ark is made out of gopher wood, right? Covered in pitch. This is made out of bulrushes. And what is the ark of the covenant made out of? Wood covered in gold. Both aspects, the gold and the wood, come from the earth. All three arks come from the earth. Hmm. The ark contains something extremely valuable to God, right? Noah and the animals and his family, Moses, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant between Israel and God. The life in the ark is secured by the sacrifice of the living that was cut off. What do you mean? In order for, that, for Moses or Noah or, uh, to be protected, something that was living, a tree, a bulrush, a papyrus, had to be cut off in order to keep the one inside alive. It is the exact same language that Daniel uses about the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9 when it says that Messiah will be cut off. You have to cut trees down, you have to cut the bulrushes in order to make these things. The ark has no human that was to guide it, by the way. Only God will guide it through his providence. There was no rudder, no way of sailing it. It was guided by God. By the way, the ark is coated, this little ark is coated in pitch. It is the same word 
that Noah coated his ark with, with pitch. It is a form of, of asphalt or tar, if you want to call it. But the interesting thing about the Hebrew word, wording behind this is that the, the word kipper in the verb form means to make propitiation through sacrifice. The ark is covered with kipper, propitiation through sacrifice. The noun in, in the Hebrew means atonement or ransom or covering. It's where we get the word atonement or covering. Now, with all those clues involved in the ark that carries Moses, what do you guess the ark refers to? What is Noah's ark referred to? What is Moses' ark referred to? All the characteristics of this divine provision is a picture of the Messiah. Whether it's Noah's ark or this ark, all of these things are a picture of Messiah. Well, what do you mean? Like, for instance, the materials come from the earth. Yeah. What did Jesus have to become to be our Redeemer? He had to become a human being. He took on flesh. And guess what our flesh is made out of? Earth. Things from the earth. Right? We're made up of the earth. So the typology in all of this is that Moses is being protected by the Lord, by Jesus. And, and same thing with Noah's Ark. You have to be in the Ark to, to find the protection and the salvation. And what does the tar represent if the tar refers to kipper? What is the one thing that takes away your sins and keeps you secure? Blood. Whose blood? Messiah's blood. So the tar and the pitch that seals the, the, the baby inside is a picture of the blood of Christ sealing us in eternal life. It's a beautiful picture of that. But let me refresh our minds about the wrath. I talked about the wrath. The three arcs that are used in Scripture are to protect against wrath. Let me show you the three arcs against wrath. The first one is Noah's ark protected from God's wrath, right? Then this ark, Moses' ark, is protected from Pharaoh's wrath, or Pharaoh's a typology for Satan or the Antichrist's wrath. And three, the ark of the covenant protects from the condemnation of the Mosaic law. These, in life, are the things that threaten you and me. Either the wrath of God, the wrath of Satan, or the condemnation from the law. Question, if Jesus is the ark, he protects us from all three, does he not? When did he protect us from the wrath of God? When he was on the cross. He took our wrath on the cross. He suffered the wrath that was due to us. What about the wrath of Satan? He disarmed the principalities on the cross, stripping them of any authority over us. We see in Hebrews chapter 2, Satan has no authority over us to kill us. He cannot physically harm us if we're under the protection of the Messiah. We're protected from Satan's wrath. How about the law? How does Messiah protect us from the law? He kept the law. And shed his blood for us not keeping it. Therefore, we are protected from the condemnation of God's law. What was on top of the ark? 
a golden seat. And if from God's standpoint, as he looked down, what would he see in the ark? You would see the broken Ten Commandments because the law of God had been broken. Then you would see Aaron's staff that budded, representing resurrection. Then you would see the pot of manna, representing the provision of God. And then on top, you would have the lid of the ark. And once a year, the priest would have to dab the blood on the top of the ark. So as God saw down, he saw a broken law. But before he saw the broken law, he saw the blood. And he looked through the blood before he saw the broken pieces. So when you and I are in the ark, God sees us through the blood of his son. And because of that, we are justified, righteous in his sight because of the Messiah. So I wanted to do that so you can see the importance of the ark and why we're being told this and why this is a theme carried through. It's Jesus. You have to be in Jesus to be protected. Let's return to the story, and, I, and this is the, I want to go back to that original point about why did she put it in the reeds. Let me give you a picture of where the land of Goshen is and where they were at in Avaris. And uh, we have some archaeological remains. This would have been the area where the Jews were. This is an archaeological recreation. And it shows you in that little city over there, that's Avaris. There's archaeological remains there that they're digging up, and they find all kinds of stuff. I remember I mentioned they found Joseph's house and the 12 tombs. This is where Avaris would have been. This is a recreation of the archaeology, what it would have looked like on the Hebrew side. Notice the forms of the houses are very Semitic. That's not an Egyptian house, but this is found all in Avaris. The square, the tops of the roof, that's classic northern Semitic archaeology. But yet it's in Egypt. So they find all this there. So this is what a recreation would have looked like where the Jews were living. This is in Avaris is where the palace is. Pharaoh would have had his palace. Pharaoh's daughter would have been there. And you can see it in line with the Nile. And the Nile would have broken up into many, many different rivers once it hit Goshen. So that's why you'll see rivers all over the place surrounding the whole area. Nonetheless, let's get this idea of her putting him in the reeds. Okay? She is doing this to protect Moses, obviously. And this is where her husband and her have a lot of faith. They realize there's something different about the boy that God is going to use this boy. So she's putting him in the reeds only until the sweeps are done. What do you mean? Well, there's the edict that you have to kill every Hebrew boy. Most of the Hebrews didn't do that. They were not willing to kill their own children. So they would try to hide them. And when they were young, it would be easier to conceal the baby when they're real, they're real small, they're just born, they're, they're nursing, and you can kind of keep them quiet. But after a while, you can't keep them quiet, right? And so what she did is she made this, this ark, and then when the Egyptians would sweep through the Israeli villages, she would go out there, put it in the reeds, and keep baby Moses out there until the sweeps were over, and then go and retrieve the baby and bring him home. The sweeps were not being done at night. They were done periodically during the days. And so a lot of the Hebrew women were hiding their babies. But eventually, a lot of them were caught. And in this situation, she does get caught. She does get caught hiding the baby. So you've got to keep in mind... 
you've got to jettison what movies have done. You've got to jettison what cartoons have done. She is trying to keep the baby close to her. So, once the sweeps are done by the Egyptian soldiers, she goes back and retrieves the baby, and at night would bring the baby back in. This was a place to hide the baby temporarily, not a put him out to sail on the Nile and never see him again. That's not what she was doing. And how long would she have done this? I don't know. As long as it took. As long as it took to preserve him. Now, what is credited to Jochebed and Amram is the fact that they did this. This is what's credited, in, in, according to the writer of Hebrews, is that this is by faith that they hid the child and did it as long as they possibly could. That's what's credited to them. So what does this mean? I'm going to do a takeaway quick, quickly on application. What this means is this. They know the child is important, so they must do everything in their power, as much as they're responsible for, to preserve his life. And then, once they've done everything they possibly could do, then they have to give the rest to God. That's the life of faith. The life of faith is not Jochebed sitting on the spiritual couch saying, Que Sarah, Sarah, God's in control, let go and let God, and sit back on the spiritual couch and do nothing. That's not biblical. Faith takes action. Faith drives the person to do everything they're responsible for, and then leave the rest to God. Do you think God will do things that you're responsible for? Oh, no. Oh, no. You remember the scene when he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead? You remember that scene? He tells them what before he raises Lazarus from the dead? Move the stone. Why did he tell them to do that? Why couldn't he just by his hand just move the stone himself? He's God. He could do that. He didn't. Why? You're responsible for moving the stone, and when you you do that, then I'll raise him. What the lesson we see from Jochebed and Amran, and all through the Bible is, we are not to sit on the lazy boy couch spiritually and and just pretend that God's just going to direct our lives. He doesn't work that way. He will direct your life as long as you're being responsible. So, for instance, I've had people come to me and say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm in need of a job, and uh, I'm just going to wait back and let God bring the job to me. I said, you crazy? You're going to go hungry. You've got to put your resume out, man. You've got to start beating the bushes. You've got to see what's out there. Oh, no, no. I'm just going to wait for God to bring me a job. You think that's what he's going to serve it up to you on a silver platter? That's not how he works. And you know that, right? But there's Christians that over-spiritualize things, and they're not responsible with the things they need to do. This is what we're seeing from Jochebed. She's doing everything she can as a mother to protect him. And then she's going to leave the rest. Okay, so that being that, we move into verse 4. And let's talk about Miriam. Doesn't name her, but look what she's doing. And his sister stood far off. Okay, Miriam, let me give you some chronology here. Moses is a baby. Aaron's about three years old. And Miriam's between 6 and 12 years old. She can't work, but she's too young, because the rest of the Israelites are in slave labor, right? So she can still be at home and unnoticed by the Egyptians. This little girl, Miriam, is fantastic. She is brilliant. 
She's quick on her feet, she's smart, and she's responsible. And again, she's between 6 and 12 years old. Pretty amazing. Okay, so it says that she stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now, here's what they were doing. When the sweeps of the Egyptians went through the villages to see if there was any babies, like Herod did with Jesus, Jochebed would go put him in the reeds, and the reeds would muffle the sound, and it would keep, the reeds would keep him from the current taking him, and he would be there by the shore. But she didn't just leave him there. She sent Miriam to stand there and watch and hide in the reeds. No Egyptian would have been caught off guard by a child standing by the bank of the river. It was a perfect concealment. If an adult was there watching things like Jochebed, it would have signaled that something's up to the Egyptians. But a child just by the river, they're going to ignore her. So she would be there and stand guard, basically, is what Miriam's doing. Standing guard, watching Moses to make sure everything's okay. That's what the Hebrew's trying to say. She's standing guard. When the sweeps are over, then Jochebed would come over and then both of them would take the baby back into the home. So this little girl is on guard for her little brother. It's amazing what she's doing. And watch what, she, what happens with her. Verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. This is the worst thing that could have possibly happened in their minds. I know the movie's presented as, oh, it's just, you know, that Miriam actually pushed the, re- the, the basket. No, no, no. This was, this was not planned. This is the providence of God. There's no doubt about that. God's working. But in Jochebed's plan and Miriam's plan and Amran's plan, this is the last thing. You do not want a, an Egyptian finding a Jewish baby boy. You just don't want to do that. Because their first thought is, they're going, he's going to die now. So you have to have this sinking feeling that when Miriam saw this, she just sank and said, oh no, my brother's going to be found. He's going to be killed. This is Pharaoh's daughter. And by the way, they knew her. They knew Pharaoh's daughter. But notice what happens. And this is where, this is where the twist comes in. This is where providence starts ruling. This is where God starts ruling, Okay. They've done all they can do. Now watch God work with things they can't do. He will work where they can't. Watch this. And her maidens walked alongside the river, the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, where's the ark floating out in the mirror? No, no, it's in the reeds because the, the the, the entourage is walking around the banks. She sent for a maid to get it. So she's not in the water yet. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. Let's unpack this a little bit and and try to understand what's going on here. Religiously, the Nile is a god to the Egyptians, okay? The fact that Pharaoh's daughter is down here means she's not just taking a bath. It says there she's there to bathe. It's a ritual bath. It's a religious bath to the Nile god. This is why her maids are not in her, but only she is doing it. It's a ritual bath. Because they could bathe in in their own palaces. They don't need to go out into the Nile. But again, this is because of the pagan ideas about the Nile being a god. Okay. Interesting enough, to her, again, think like a pagan, okay? To her, she had already heard the edict of her father. And what is the edict of the father in regards to the Nile god? Expose the baby to the Nile and see if the Nile accepts the baby or rejects it. 
See, that's the religious premise they're working on. So you have to think pagan in this term. So when she sees a baby on the reeds that has not been consumed by the Nile, what is she thinking religiously? Huh. The Nile didn't accept this baby. You see how God is using, this is amazing, he's using their own false religion against them. That's brilliant. That's God. He uses their own false religion against them. And check this out. Archaeology has discovered inscriptions in Egypt. And there's an oath that they made to the Nile God. And this is the oath. It says this, I have afflicted no man. I have not made any man weep. I have not withheld milk from the mouths of sucklings. This is an oath taken to the Nile God that the Nile God would be good to them if they hadn't harmed anybody or hurt a baby. More of their false religion being used on Pharaoh's daughter. You see how it works? God is at that level of intricacy. He's at that level. So when she sees this baby, she's thinking this was offered back by the Nile God. She's thinking, I have already made this oath to the Nile God as, as, as Pharaoh's daughter, and I'm not going to hurt this child. Otherwise, if that hadn't been there, it would have been Moses' certain death. No doubt about it. And so providence is starting to take over. Watch God work. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This is interesting. Notice how Moses, this is his adopted mom that he's talking about. He says, my, my adopted mom had compassion on me. This is not just pity. Moses could have used the word pity where she felt sorry for the child. It's compassion. And Moses is trying to relate a concept to us in this, that as she sees Moses, compassion is the idea that I'm going to sympathize and empathize with you because I'm going to put myself in your position. I'm going to identify with your pain. I'm going to identify with the emotions you feel currently right now, and that is far more than just pity. That is, I'm identifying with the Hebrews. Wow. Wow. And she's thinking in terms, if I was a Hebrew mother, I would never want this to happen to my child. So she, things are working in her. Things, she's starting to think. And I wanted to tell you that the cries of baby Moses perhaps stopped the genocide of all the Hebrew babies. What do you mean? Pharaoh's daughter is going to take him in, which means she's going against her own father's edict to kill Hebrew babies. If the law is now going to be enforced... Pharaoh has to enact the law against his own daughter. And he's not. Hence, the theologians, the archaeologists, and scholars have looked at this and perhaps concluded, again, it's, it's not in Scripture, we don't know, but perhaps included because of the law of Pharaoh being resisted by his own daughter, that the enforcement of that law was stopped on that day because of Pharaoh's daughter. The tears of a baby stopped Pharaoh's law. That's amazing. That's God. Isn't that amazing? You couldn't have wrote that. 
You could, that, that, that's, that's so intricate. That's, that's God. You can only explain it away by God. Now, it gets better. It gets better. Now, so not only perhaps the edict is stopped of killing Hebrew babies, but it gets better for, for Jochebed and Amran personally, and Moses as well, verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Miriam's right on the spot. She knows exactly what to say. She knows exactly what to do. She's quick-witted. Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Very clever. Miriam, right on dot, man. She's perfect. Now, what Moses is trying to do is highlight that it's not Pharaoh's daughter in control. It's definitely God in control. But now this little girl between 6 and 12 is controlling Pharaoh's daughter. Check that out. A child is now suggesting to Pharaoh's daughter, here's what we're going to do. Wow. A little child. A little child can, can change the whole empire. You know, Josephus, he adds this, that the princess went to her handmaids around her and asked if any of them were nursing, and none of them were. And so then Miriam capitalizes on that, saying, well, I know a Hebrew that can. And that Hebrew, by the way, is none other than Moses' mom. Wow. Verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said, go. That's the turning point. That right there is the deliverance of Moses, right there. Notice how Moses has been delivered by women. Isn't that interesting? The deliverer is delivered by women. Theme, typology. Jesus, the deliverer, was saved by his mom. They went into Egypt. Remember that? Gabriel told them to go into Egypt, protect him. Birthwise, a woman delivered the Messiah. You see the parallels? So God is prepping us for Jesus through Moses. Pretty cool. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Obviously, he doesn't know names, but we know it's Jochebed. Now, now this is, gets even better. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. She's going to get paid for this. How ironic. It's not only the mom, but she's going to get paid to take care of her own child. That's pretty cool. That's what God does. That's what God does when people don't try to manipulate the situation. They're doing all they can and they let go to God. God turns it in their favor. Against a powerful Egyptian court? Yeah. Through the tears of a baby. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So God gave Moses back to Jacobed and she could raise him and teach him. At least for at least five years, we know. And that Hebrew roots was put into Moses very deeply. Then verse 10 says this. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. So there was a point in time where Jochebed had to take him back to Pharaoh's daughter. We're thinking about five years old. He was given back to her. And he became her son, so he's adopted. Okay? So she called his name Moses. In Egyptian, Moses means child or boy. But the Hebrew means what you're going to read right now. Saying, because I drew him out of water. It's the idea that she was the one who pulled him, this boy, out of the water. And so Moses gets his Hebrew name from that. It's a derivative off the Egyptian. But 
The idea is this. I want you to see the dramatic irony in all of this. Pharaoh is trying to kill the Israelites by drowning them. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Where's the irony? Because later on, you're going to see the entire Egyptian army drowned. It's kind of what we call God's ironic judgment. The little boy who had an edict coming from Pharaoh that meant judgment to him and his life is going to die will be raised in the very palace in which one day he will go before that Pharaoh and say, thus saith the Lord. All the firstborn in your family will die. The judgment that was trying to be brought to Moses will now be brought by Moses to Pharaoh when he's older. It's called ironic judgment. He gives back to them what they dished out. Wow. And this will happen in your life. And I want to make this point to you. What you're seeing here happens in not only your life and mine, but any believer who faithfully obeys the Lord. The Lord can change circumstances on a dime with the right people, the right mindset, the right situation, the right event. And you have to always keep that in your framework as you're dealing with life. Because think about it from your perspective and Moses' perspective. Moses had his life threatened he has been back and forth between his mom and his adopted mom. He is going to be raised as an Egyptian. There's going to be reasons why, and we'll talk about that next week, uh, why he has to be raised as an Egyptian, because there's things he needs to learn. But do you think Moses liked it, being away from mom and dad all those years? He knew where his mom and dad were. He probably visited them a little bit. But it still broke his heart because he couldn't live with them. He couldn't be with his sister. couldn't be with Aram. His family is what we call a broken family. It's by necessity. It needs to happen in order to get Moses trained and or in order to protect Moses. But it is still difficult. But God's providence rules. And this is the same thing I want to say to you. Many of us come from these broken backgrounds We've got ourselves involved in things. Other people did things to us, whatever. And we're not here to be victims. Moses was never a victim, ever. But we understand that even though we come into this life crippled, attacked, maligned, God still uses us for great things. You might be saying right now, I feel like my life is going uphill, and every day it's a constant battle, and I'm getting really, really tired because of all the stress you're having to go through, not only from our culture, but your own family life, just the reality that you're all living in, and we feel like, man, we're, I'm just going uphill. When does it get easier? Perhaps that uphill battle is your ramp for your mission in life. Moses will go through an uphill battle and he spends 40 years in the desert, man, learning lessons, big-time lessons, as you will see. His whole upbringing was kind of shattered. But all of that was to build him up to be able to do what God called him to do. So please, when you look at your own life, see it through the eyes of this story. 
Do everything you can, like Jacobed did. Do all what you're responsible for, and then leave the rest to God, and watch what he does to obedient people. He turns the tables for them. He protects them. He safeguards them. He navigates them through life. And at the end, you will be able to look back in your life saying, that was impossible. It had to be God. There's no way I could have got to this point without God's intervention. That's what he's doing for you. Don't ever forget that. That uphill battle is your ramp to the call. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.